Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Energy is in the spotlight once again as gas prices are expected to go up and the energy crisis mounts with the EU's ban on most Russian crude oil imports taking effect in early December. Research analyst Thomas Goldthorpe breaks down the latest events in the energy and oil landscape. He says oil markets look to be balanced with real upside and downside risk. Thomas also discusses the current story in Russia. He says as the December ban on Russian oil looms ahead, he describes the country as a two-way risk. The oil can be redirected, but there may be some short-term 30 to 60 days friction as a result. In addition, countries like China, India and the Middle East will import more Russian oil as they do not believe in the embargo of Russia's product. Thomas further expands on Europe's oil embargo, touches on how weather plays a part in the current gas climate, and how investors should be looking at equities or their energy equities within their portfolios. This podcast was reported on October 27, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We started out there, Thomas, just talking about what we saw the Bank of Canada do. Um, it is obviously a rising rate environment, a little less than expected, though. And um, looks like actually oil stocks, a lot of things in the market overall have kind of responded to talks of a pivot, more talks of a pivot, I guess. Do you see it that way? Yeah. So I think the, the oil markets generally view a pivot as being positive because obviously it's supportive for uh, medium term demand. So as long as this pivot conversation continues, um, it should be supportive for oil prices. Right. And we've also seen the U.S. dollar come down. So that always has its own sort of implications for commodities. I, I wonder if you can kind of situate us, though, in, in the discussion of investment with it for energy companies. So energy equities, looking at them. Um, it's been a, a very interesting time over the last couple of years. Are we, are we at the end of it? Are we at the beginning of it? What, what do you see? Right. So I think right now um, in oil markets, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting time. Uh, markets look to be balanced with real upside and uh, downside risk. Um, and the companies themselves are also very interesting in that they remain very cheap on strip and they're doing the right things uh, with their capital. So it feels like given, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in both directions that this is more of a period to focus on stock picking as opposed to making kind of large, uh, large macro direction bets on on the price of oil. Okay, it's it, so I mean they are though as you say doing good things with the money that they're making. I mean that that broadly has meant giving it back to shareholders. Um, any nuance to that that you want to provide that sort of changes or is different now or maybe it isn't. Yeah, so th- this cycle is very different. So capital discipline is real. Um, so management teams, this has been a very slow transition. So starting roughly five years before COVID through today, uh, the companies have really transitioned from 
being 100% growth focused to being more returns focused. And this is really coming from the shareholders and the shareholders badgering management teams. And now the management teams have all transferred over. So right now we're in a world where even though oil prices are very high, gas prices are high, return on incremental investments very high, that companies are still being very disciplined with their capital. And by being very disciplined with their capital means that they're generating significant free cash flow um, at levels that we haven't seen historically. And um, that free cash flow generation looks to continue um, at current um, current prices and that cash is primarily being returned to shareholders and used in um, attractive M&A. Okay, interesting. What is the M&A landscape? Are we, are we sort of wrapping up? We've seen a few deals actually recently, but what would you say broadly about the M&A front? Is consolidation sort of, have we gotten through a fair amount of that? Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of consolidation. There's still more to go. There's kind of two buckets. One is more um, more kind of ESG-driven type type divestitures, which which offer kind of a very attractive uh, multiples for for um, for other companies to acquire within Canada. And then there's just been more broader uh, consolidation. And yeah, deals have gone more expensive. So we've gone from a world in second half of 2020 and 2021 where any deal was a home run because there's just a lot of four sellers that just did not want to be in hydrocarbons. The deals today are getting a little more expensive. They're still attractive, but they're not as attractive as they were. Uh, but they're still kind of a move towards greater consolidation as, um, yeah, you have kind of uh, anti-carbon type divestitures, as well as you have a lot of private equity funds who made investments five to 10 years ago who now want to, um, whose funds have matured and who need to kind of divest. And there's an interest in driving further consolidation within the industry. Okay, so let's get sort of right to the heart of the risks for the global oil market right now. We, we, by now, we all know the story of Russia. We all know what's happened. We all know what happened to oil prices in response. Where are we now in this story? There are risks, there are discussions about, you know, the ongoing war and the risks that that poses. But Russia also has less countries to sell to at this point. Um, tell us about you know how we should be thinking about global risks to the oil markets. Right. So there's kind of two-way risk. So Russia, I view as a two-way risk. So first, yeah, December 5th, the European import embargoes are put in place. Um, and there's kind of some insurance bans as well. It looks like maybe those insurance bans will be a little bit weaker. So it looks like all that oil can be redirected, but there may be some short-term 30, 60 days of friction as a result of that. Another risk out of Russia is linked to- Sorry, when you say redirected, just to hold you there, what, what do you mean by that? So effectively, the oil, places like China, India, and even the Middle East will import more uh, Russian oil as they um, do not believe in the embargo of, of, of Russian product. And then oil that those countries were previously importing from places like the Middle East will be redirected to Europe. So there is enough infrastructure to make it all happen, but there's a lot of rewiring that needs to occur to make sure that um, the Russian oil gets to where it needs to be and the non-Russian oil uh, gets to where it needs to be. Um, so speaking of Russia, there's short-term kind of transa transactional risk 
around um, the rerouting of those barrels. Uh, and there's also the potential of a unilateral cut by Russia. So similar to how Russia cut uh, natural gas um, supply into uh, Europe, there's a chance that they also cut global oil prices to increase oil prices and put more pressure on Europe to sue for peace in Ukraine. Um, on the flip side with Russia, there's also some upside supply risk on, let's call it a six to 12 month basis, because it appears that on the ground, Russia is, um, is losing ground in Ukraine. So if this situation persists and Russia continue, and Ukraine continues to push back uh, Russia, there's a chance of Russian peace and a more normalized uh, Russian oil supply environment. So there is kind of shorter term, there's potential of real kind of disruption. But I think in the medium to longer term, there's upside risk to what a lot of people believe uh, out of Russia just due to potential Russian peace. Um, so that bucket, there's economic risk. It does appear that a recession will occur uh, next year. Um, and there's a reasonable probability that it is a deeper recession and deeper recessions will impact demand. Uh, so that's a risk. Um, and then, yeah, there's uncertainty around uh, OPEC as well. So OPEC has cut uh, into the end of the year to help offset some of the uh, demand headwinds from places like China due to uh, zero COVID and, and, and Europe as well has had weak demand. Um, so there is debate around whether how aggressively they're going to defend pricing, both on the downside. And also they have now they have more spare capacity so they can increase production on the upside. So all this is to say is that um, there is a lot of uncertainty out there. There's upside and downside risks. So tell um, me, um, you know, that's because this this was something that was discussed a while ago and it's hard, it's hard to know really what's going on. There's so many different pieces. But there, there was an argument that the Chinese Congress will happen and and then they will magically lift lockdowns. That hasn't happened, but there have been sort of incremental, it looks like some version of vaccines happening um, in China, different kinds, that kind of thing. I mean, what if China opened up reasonably quickly? What would that do to oil demand globally? globally? Yeah, yeah, it would, it would clearly be a positive for oil demand. Um, it should lead to higher prices. Part of that could potentially be offset by increased OPEC production. Um, as I think OPEC doesn't want prices to go too high, but they also don't want prices to go too low. Uh, so there, there is a potential offset there. And now OPEC has the spare capacity due to the recent cuts to, uh, to buffer the market a little bit more. But ultimately, it would be a positive for the market. There's a lot of voices coming out of Saudi Arabia right now because they're, they're having a big conference. So you're hearing a lot of sort of quotes here and there. We've heard the, the oil minister, Mr. Nasser, say that um, they're interested in and blue hydrogen. I mean, the world is looking at alternative energies. Let's just turn attention to this a little bit. I think the quote from from um, the oil minister was along the lines of blue hydrogens, where we'd like to go super expensive to produce it right now, you know, in the neighborhood of like $300 for a barrel of oil, sort of that type of area. It needs to come down with, um, you know, a catalyst, a big client, a big deal being signed. I mean, what do you make of all this? There's is, is this really something that's going to move? Is it going to move quickly? Um, how do you react to those discussions? Yeah, so, so my view of hydrogen, it's still relatively early stages. Um, the technology's there. It's just, as you said, it's very expensive. Um, my opinion of hydrogen, it's one of um, 
for, for, any, for all energy transition, I don't think there's one single solution. It's you do a lot of solutions and maybe 20 to 30 different things. They're all small in isolation, but when you add them all up, um, they are all helpful. Um, so I think there is um, room for blue hydrogen and it will play a role in the transition, uh, but it won't be massively transformative. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Saudi's investment in the space progresses. Because the interesting thing with Saudi is now with higher oil prices, they have more excess uh, savings, which they can use to invest in more of these energy transition projects. Right. Interesting. Right. So it's nice for the oil price to be high for a little while till they can invest in some of those um, options for the future. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just gives them more money so they can invest in more, uh, yeah, more future technology. Okay. So interesting. Okay, let's go to a few questions. There's um, a number of things sort of rolling in here. Okay, so are we back um, to a long-term kind of secular bull market for commodities? There have been lots of questions about this. Uh, there are lots of talk about recession too. So, I mean, how do you, how do you square that? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts to that question. So I say in terms of energy, um, I wouldn't necessarily say we're in a secular bull argument and energy prices can only go up from here. Um, what I would say is though, is that the next five years will likely look better than the last five years as markets are a little tighter and yeah, they're a little more susceptible to uh, unexpected events. Um, and yeah, there's a little more upside skew kind of in that um, net risk return uh, risk-reward risk uh, trade-off. So this question came in, I think you, you pointed to it earlier, but it, it, it's a great, you know, it is, it's sort of the key question for Russia. So this is with Europe's oil embargo, um, which you were mentioning before, who will Russia sell oil to? India, China, you mentioned those. You also mentioned the Middle East, which I think might be Turkey, but, you know, just talk a little bit more about either how serious that, that concern would be for Russia or if it's getting... I guess, managed. You said there's sort of a, a reorganization of things. Right. So two things. Uh, I guess one on Middle East, there actually is some signs that even Saudi Arabia is importing some Russian crude and they're exporting more Saudi Arabian product. I think ultimately the world we're in right now outside of Europe, outside of the US and outside of maybe J Japan and South Korea, that the rest of the world has determined that they'd rather buy cheap Russian energy than, um, than not buy it. And what we're seeing is there's a, there's a greater receptivity uh, in these countries to import the product. So um, Africa could be a big importer, um, even South America to a lesser extent, and basically Asia, right? So basically all these countries effectively outside of those ones I just mentioned um, have shown a willingness to buy the product. And yeah, it's really hard to go to these countries and say, hey, uh, the economy's slow, um, things are tough on the ground right now, and hey, don't buy Russian product, even though it's a lot cheaper. Um, so I think there's there's a way, and also and also there's a lot of kind of backdoor stuff going on that you're effectively importing Russian crude, but you blend it or you use other uh, other ways to. There's other clever ways to kind of get around these sanctions, and we've seen historically um, that in oil markets, especially that. Um, there's ways around these sanctions that are kind of difficult to monitor. 
It's so, like it's like the reason so, for Dubai is to sell Iranian goods. No, it's not. That's not quite true. But it, it certainly is where a lot of Iranian goods. I mean, there, there are limits to how things work. Let me just ask you this: it, Does Russian oil? Does it have to go through if it were to get to Africa? Does it need to go through the Suez Canal? Um, it depends. Um, it depends where the where the oil is going, right? So I think in Eastern Africa, it'll go through Suez, but on the on West Africa. Uh, it doesn't have to go through the Suez. It can just it just go out through the Mediterranean. Fascinating how all these lines are rerouting. Speaking of lines rerouting, let's look at Canada a little bit. Um, you mentioned earlier that you know because Europe kind of has to find other ways, they are finding other ways, or there's a, there's a faster move on that front, and that has a lot to do with ESG and, and alternatives and so on. But in Canada, the the question marks surrounding getting some pipelines built, um, gas pipelines built. We actually spoke on this program to the ambassador to the UN for Canada, Bob Ray, last week, and he said that he he was seeing more movement actually with First Nations, with discussions about getting more pipelines across this country to sell abroad to get to other Canadians. I mean, some movement on this front. Do you is that what you see from your analysis? Yeah. So I think what I'm seeing today is there's a lot of talk of a more supportive environment for energy infrastructure. But when push comes to shove, there still hasn't been a lot of action. And I think what you'll find in um, a lot of these cases is you can find people are very supportive of, of these actions. You can find First Nations and everybody else. But once you go down the path of permitting, there's going to be um, groups that are very opposed to it and will be very publicly opposed to it. Um, that will hold up the processes. And when push comes to shove, it still doesn't appear that we have the political will to get, get the stuff built. So um, in, a, in a, yeah, interesting first. That's at yeah, all levels of government? That's a, like, it's, it's tricky on. Yeah, I think, I, think, I, think, I think as you get closer to on the ground, there's a little more support, uh, especially in Alberta. Um, but ultimately, I think, yeah, at the, especially at the federal level, there's just not the political will to, um, get these projects completed if there is kind of strong uh, minority pushback on the project. So that's kind of the frustrating thing is you can have these situations where the majority of people support it, uh, but if 5, 10, 15% of people are opposed to it, then uh, that can ultimately uh, cancel these projects. Just coming back to sort of strategically how investors need to be looking at um, equities, oil equities within their energy equities within their portfolios. I mean, we certainly saw energy be a winning group um, for a long time. Year to date, we've seen some incredible moves. Sometimes that means something different for the year after. How, how do you look at that? How do you respond to that? Yeah, no, I think it's a fair, um, it's, a, it's a fair question for sure. There's been big outperformance this year, big outperformance last year. Um, and yeah, the normalized energy prices these stocks are pricing in are yeah significantly higher than they were, uh, but also the setup I think has improved. So um, stuff has changed, fundamentals have changed, uh, companies have proved that they are a little more disciplined. So um, as always, I think um, I don't necessarily look at past performance to try to predict future performance, and I think in this case that holds true. Um, so maybe they're not as screaming cheap as they were, um, but it also doesn't appear that they're incredibly expensive either. How important is the weather 
whether they're asking a fellow Canadian, but but actually for this winter, how how much on a knife's edge is sort of how things could really spiral out of control in terms of having enough energy in certain parts of the world? Is it just dependent on how cold a winter it is? Yeah, yeah, weather is important. So especially in Europe with their current gas situation, um, but also you always have to remember that weather is a, a, a two-way risk. So if we have a really cold winter, Europe should be fine, but energy prices are going to go higher and potentially significantly higher. But if you get normal weather or warm weather, and remember the last 10 years, you've generally had warmer rather than colder weather, um, it could put real downside pressure on, um, on European gas prices. And it's the same setup in North America in that um, a lot of people want to talk about what happens in a winter scenario when things get tight and how high prices can go. But um, a lot of that risk is also balanced by if you don't have cold weather, then yeah, there could be significantly significant downside risk to pricing. So, and I think in this environment, given where inventories are and everything else, um, there's just greater range of outcomes that could occur. So versus history, a cold winter probably does make prices go higher than they would historically. Um, but you could actually see prices actually go down more than we normally would if we have a, have a warm winter. Right. Okay. Just on sort of the inventories, the spare capacity discussion, um, we saw the U.S. for a variety of different reasons release their, their special purpose, their extra inventories, essentially. Um, what do we need to know on that front about whether replenishments going forward sort of from political inflationary discussion need to happen? What, what do investors need to watch on that front? Yeah, so I think um, SPR looks like they will finish up their initial program um, by the end of this year. There's some congressionally mandated sales to come as well. Um, I think they talk about refilling. So this is another one where we will see how serious they are about refilling. So they talked about around they $70 WTI they'll they refill. Have, do they have to? Is it necessary? No, they don't necessarily have to. So the thing you have to remember with the U.S. is the U.S. is effectively balanced. Um, their oil supply is balanced. Uh, and if you include Canadian imports, they're actually a large exporter of, 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 of oil. So generally, countries that are balanced to exporters of oil don't actually need SPRs primarily. So um, the most famous one is Russia doesn't have big inventories because they're generally a big exporter, um, whereas countries that are short. So traditionally, um, U.S., like if you look at it pre-shale, it was a big importer of energy, so the SPR was more important. Um, so the refill question is interesting um, in that the question is if prices do go down to their target price and the economy is a lot worse, will politicians ultimately decide to spend money on replenishing the SBR or do they want to spend it on kind of other programs? Um, famously, um, in 2020, uh, the president wanted to fill up the SBR at $24 oil and uh, the Congress said no. So um, things, so there's a lot of talk of refilling and doing all this, but I think when we actually get to it, um, It'll be interesting to see what actually happens. What I have a couple more questions for you, but I'm I'm curious, you know, what what are we missing here? What what's one of the sort of big stories that you feel is is either coming down the pike or you know is a piece of the energy transition story that that maybe we're talking about less or maybe we're talking about something too much? I don't know. What what what's around the corner? 
Yeah, so I think I think I think two things to notice. Uh, we talked about natural gas. So it's just the two-way risk. Everyone wants to talk about what happens if you have a cold winter, but think about that there is some downside risk if we have a warm winter or regular weather. Uh, another topic I think is interesting is Iran. Uh, so you're having kind of big protests there, um, and yeah, there are questions of whether or not that either accelerates the the nuclear agreement or accelerates regime change um, in the country. Uh, which could kind of bring a lot of additional supply back on the market. Um, I think on Russia, the chance of Russian peace. So we're all in this mindset that this Russia war will go on forever and Russia supply will never improve. Um, but I do think the current situation on the ground is feels unsustainable because um, ultimately, um, yeah, U.S. is supplying weapons. At a, to the Ukrainians at a faster pace than, 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 than the Russians can. And Russia's having a tough time replacing that inventory, so they're slowly losing on the battlefield. That looks like an unsustainable situation, and that looks like a situation that could be resolved in a year's time. So there is a lot of Russian risk around what happens over the next three months, but um, yeah, give it a year, give it two years, Russia could be back to normal, and that changes everything. So, um, so there is, I think the big takeaway is there is two-way risk. Everyone wants to talk about the the tightness and how high things can go but there are stuff that could go the other way as well um and i think oftentimes that stuff is um yeah it's not given the same same type of airtime that the uh, more bullish narr- narrative is given that's very interesting okay and um there was a point at which there were questions which you know it's not possible for the fed to chase the oil price we know that but but there was sort of a question of whether the Fed was trying to chase the oil price, you know, to try and crush inflation. Um, give us just a little bit of a sense of how things are working with rates rising, some signs that inflation's coming down, but we still have high oil prices. Where, where, do, where does this all fit? We understand the core and the separation, but I'm just sort of curious in this rising rate environment, where the inflation story with oil fits? Yeah, so I think there's a bit of chicken and egg. So if they cut rates or they don't increase rates enough, then oil prices go much higher, that creates more inflation and that prevents them from actually truly pivoting. So in the short term, oil prices will, I think, hurt hurt the ability to uh, for the Fed to cut. Um, the second thing with that is over the medium term, if Fed keeps rates too high for too long, that could create a recession, which could create um, kind of demand destruction. Um, and I think going in that conversation is also the OPEC's decision to cut, which does um, lead to higher oil prices, which ultimately puts more pressure on the Fed to keep rates higher for longer and could ultimately lead to kind of greater demand destruction at the other side of this. So um, it is interesting that there is a bit of a governor on the Fed's ability to pivot in that if they pivot too quickly, you get higher oil prices and then higher inflation and then a force to kind of either re-increase interest rates or or, or stick to the original plan. Thank you so much, Thomas Goldthorpe, for laying out sort of the field of upside, downside risk and and ultimately where the story of oil goes from here. We're very grateful you could join us. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. 
And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.